You may be seated. If you need a Bible this morning, if you'd hold up your hand, the ushers are passing them out. Anybody need a Bible? Going once, going twice, anybody at all? Okay, Al, you can't even give one away this morning. I want to welcome you to Sierra Bible Church this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Wayne. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Sierra Bible Church. And Pastor Jesse today is in Reno doing a memorial service for a family of some young men that he and my son played football with at uh, Truckee High School. Bill Wicks is the name of the father who passed away. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, the longer you spend in a time, time in a town, you get opportunities that the only thing that can be explained is the longevity that you've been there. And so uh, Eric Wicks and uh, his brother Chris, when their dad passed, uh, came and asked Jesse if he would do the memorial service. And it's going to be happening in Reno today, and so that's where Jesse is presently. And speaking of memorial services, you know, over the last few years, we have watched some giants of the faith pass from the Christian scene. Men like Howard Hendricks and Chuck Colson, R.C. Sproul, and Billy Graham. And this past week, another giant of the faith passed in the arms of the Lord, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a lifelong pastor, author, seminary, seminary professor, and the translator of The Message. You may have heard his name attached to the, the paraphrase translation of the New Testament called The Message, which has sold over 20 million copies. Uh, I was reading last night that Nav Press, who publishes The Message, the, they've only had one other book in the history of Nav Press that even reached a million, and The Message has sold 20 million. Eugene passed at his home on Flathead Lake, in Montana, surrounded by his family, and he was 85 years old. And I mention this because uh, Eugene Peterson had a lot to do with my coming to Truckee and my staying in Truckee. When I was in Moab, Utah, that's when I discovered Eugene, and he was pastoring then uh, Christ our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland, where he was for almost 30 years. And he used to talk about a pastor looking at a church as a farmer does his field, and you just farm that same, those same fields year after year after year after year. And he would talk much about the, the benefits of long-term pastorates. And when God began to dismantle my pastoral nest in Moab, Utah, I was confused. And so I contacted Eugene, and I, I have a letter on my desk right now that I dug back out that I received in May of 1991. And... It was the encouragement to follow the Lord to my next lifelong field. <laughs> and that was Truckee. And then in 1991, I received an offer to go minister with Dr. Dobson at Focus on the Family and was looking in that direction. And uh, the church that year for my 50th birthday had given me an Alaska fishing trip with my father and my son. So we took off on September 1st, went to Alaska and played around Scheduled to return on September 11th. Well, we woke up that morning and there were some things happening in Washington, D.C. and New York City that 
left us in Juneau, Alaska for the next week. And I had just taken, I had grabbed a book off of my shelf on the way out the door and thought maybe I'll have some time to read. Little did I know that I was going to have a week to read and digest and hear the voice of the Lord. And in his book, Working the Angles, Eugene Peterson spoke deeply to my heart. God spoke through his writings, and God made it plain. He had not called me to be a PR man to Jim Dobson. He'd called me to proclaim his word in Truckee, California. And he said, get your little keister back home and do what I've called you to do. And so it was Eugene Peterson speaking into my life that brought me to Truckee. It was Eugene Peterson speaking in my life that allowed me to stay in Truckee. And so, and I want to start our time together today with Eugene Peterson's part of his introduction to the book of James in the message. And look at this. Before every uh, book in the message, he wrote an introduction. This is just a paragraph of one. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work of diagnosing, confronting, and dealing with areas of misbelief and misbehavior that had turned up in the congregations committed to his care. Deep and living wisdom is on display here. Wisdom both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. Wisdom is skill in living. What good is truth if we don't live it? Would you stand with me this morning and join me in James chapter 2 as we read our text together? James chapter 2. The title of my message this morning is Faith Without Works is dead. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
4. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, to say the least, we have been challenged by this book. And as I read not only from it, but also commentators about it, that's exactly what James was trying to do. He was trying to awaken the church of his day as to who they were in the Lord Jesus Christ and what skillful living as children of God in Christ would look like. And Father, the fact of the matter is we come to a piece of Scripture today that uh, on some ways may confuse us or befuddle us. We know that there have been theologians lined up on opposite sides of this fence. And uh, you've allowed it to be in your word. So we're not going to apologize for it, but I also believe that it's not here to confuse us, but it's here to encourage us in our faith, in our living with you, are living with one another, are living in a fallen world. Father, as I walked with you this morning, I was thinking of the Ark of the Covenant that the children of Israel carried with them as they journeyed through the wilderness. And inside that Ark was the tablets upon which the very finger of God had written the Ten Commandments. A jar containing manna that had fallen from heaven and Aaron's rod that budded. And Father, I pray today that I might be your ark to this people, carrying forth your commandments, sharing the living manna that comes down out of heaven, and speaking life to those areas in our lives that are dead and need to be revived. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're at a portion of Scripture that can be confusing, that we, is easy to misinterpret. And I think one of the reasons is, and let me say this, we need to be students of the Bible. And students of the Bible, that's more than just our devotional reading. We need to be students of the Bible that open up this book and have pen and paper in hand and maybe some, a concordance and a Bible dictionary and, and go after these things. Because the full revelation of God and His plan is not presented to us in snapshots, but it's presented to us in panorama. And that panorama is Genesis to Revelations. As I've been studying James this week and realizing, as Pastor Jesse has told us, that his chief influences were the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs. And it's obvious that it was the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs that he referred to, that he went back to, that he considered, and that he studied. But we've got to be careful that we don't take a verse like verse 14 and just take a snapshot of it and try to figure out the lay of the land 
that lays within Panorama. The homers just got back from Utah. Hurricane, and it's not hurricane, it's hurricane. Down near Zion and Bryce National Park. Sandy and I lived for years in Moab, Utah, Canyonlands and Arches National Park. And there are times that you step out into that gorgeous, beautiful country and you are overwhelmed. And your vision is just not big enough to take it in. And they sent me a snapshot of themselves and behind them was just enough to make me homesick. There was a nice red rock and some pinion trees behind them. But that was just a snapshot that's laid within a glorious panorama. And I'm, I'm belaboring this this morning because there is much of the Word of God that you and I will never understand with a snapshot-style studying of God's Word. There is a big picture. And that big picture... will only be discovered through study. Are you ready to jump in? <laughs> this is yes, this is no. Those of you who are scared, the door's open, you can go. <laughs> James starts this passage with two questions. And I hope that when you're reading God's Word, every time you come to a question, you stop and answer the question. He's got two questions to start off with here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James has an answer in his mind here. And the answer is no good. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? James' answer would be it's no good. And then he says, can that faith save him? And James' answer here would be no, it cannot. And so right up front, he's just, he's in our face. He's in our face right up front. And, uh, and at first glance, we, we go, James, James, where are you going? You know, Martin Luther didn't like this book. And one of the problems he had with it was, were these verses. Martin Luther had restored to the church salvation by grace through faith. In Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And so it's easy at first glance when we study this book and we lay the writings of James alongside the writings of the Apostle Paul, it would be easy to say that they were speaking about two different things. For Paul's emphasis, especially in the Ephesians, his emphasis is that one is saved by faith alone. And along comes James with an emphasis that says that faith without works is dead. Sounds like a couple politicians out on the stump, doesn't it? But it's not. But let's look at what these men have said. The Apostle Paul said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But as James begins to write here, it's obvious that he is emphasizing a universal truth 
that was taught by both John the Baptist and Jesus himself. When the Pharisees came to, G- to John the Baptist for baptism, he said to them, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. What's he talking about? He's saying, there's got to be something different about you, buster. I'll baptize you unto repentance. But repentance, what does it mean? It means an about face. It means a turnaround. And he says, now when you leave here, go forth and bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. You've done an about face. Now keep on walking in God's direction. And then Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, there's that word again, and give glory to who? To your Father that's in heaven. You see, the good works that we're talking about here are not works that are manifested because I can muster up the gumption to do them. These are works that are a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit and that they flow out of us and when he lives in us and is having his way with us and and we become more generous in our living and in our giving and in our sharing and our, in our, our living for Christ and when the world around us understands that I don't have the capacity to love in that way. I don't have the capacity to give in that way. I don't have the capacity to serve in that way. Their only conclusion will be, it must be their faith. It must be the one who lives in them and empowers them. And as a result, when the work, good works are done, it's not you and me that get the pat on the back. But it's our Father in heaven. You know, I've told people over the years, I've told it to our worship team, I've told it to Pastor Jesse, I've told it to young pastors along the way. Because, you know, there are times that when we're done preaching a sermon or this, the song group is done, that, you know, somebody comes through the door and says, you know, thank you, Pastor, the Lord really spoke to me through your words today. And, you know, the first temptation as a younger pastor was to get all falsely humble. Oh, it was nothing you know, look at the floor and blush. And God said, no, no, no. That's perfectly fine. You can say, well, thank you. I'm glad that God spoke to you through my words today. But he says, just as soon as the last person leaves this room, then you get back to your office and you get on your face before me and you lay the bouquets that they gave you on the way out the door at my feet. Because that's the only place that's safe. These aren't mine, Jesus. They don't belong to me, Jesus. They are rightfully yours, Jesus. But if we'll go on and continue to study even the Apostle Paul, we're going to start seeing him say things like, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Ah, I wonder what this accounting is about. Well, he tells us in the next verse. For we must all... There's nobody in here getting out of this, okay? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. See, here the Apostle Paul is writing about not a judgment of salvation here, but a judgment of the works of the believer. The works of the believer that were wrought in Christ. Works prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Look at this. I mean, you want to talk about a, a verse that feels like it goes 14 different directions in about four sentences. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Period. By grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes on to those of us that think we had something to do with it and says, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And now here we go. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And what he's talking about here, none of us are going to be able to stand before God on that day and say, well, I'm here because I. We're not going to be able to pop our chest out and boast of our Sunday school attendance and our giving record and, and all the times we, 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 we made a pie for somebody or brought something to the potluck or to the fellowship time between services. No. Not as a result of works. Totally and absolutely a result of grace alone through faith alone by Christ alone. But then, hang on, let's look at the next sentence. For we are his workmanship, you're his masterpiece, you're his poema, created in Christ Jesus. Oh, no! For what? For good works. Really? But hang on even further. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, Ephesians has a lot of beforehand stuff in it. Before the foundation of the world. Beforehand. Beforehand. Written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Beforehand. Beforehand. So he's saying here, you will never be saved by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps through your own good works. But if you truly are saved, the fruit of your life is going to be good works, which Christ prepared beforehand that you should now, as a believer, walk in them. Remember Paul and Silas? They went to Philippi and started doing some preaching out in the street and delivered a demon-possessed girl and ended up in the slammer. They were beaten, thrown into the prison. And they were just like us. You know, they've been beaten within an inch of their life. They're oozing. Their body is full of welts. And at midnight, they began singing praises unto God. Just like us, huh? At midnight, they began singing praises unto God. And as they were singing praises unto God, there was an earthquake that shook the prison, and all the chains on all the prisoners fell off their hands and their feet. And all the doors came open. And they, are, they walk out into some area of the prison, and here's the jailer going, oh no, they're going to kill me because all the prisoners got away. Paul says, whoa, 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 everybody's still here. Everybody's still here. And he fell down at Paul's feet, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And I think that he meant that on a whole bunch of levels. <laughs> but what he got from Paul was this. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I think that that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But, the significance that we as individuals are going to attach to this command depends entirely upon the meaning 
we attach to the word believe. There's two kinds of belief. There is the belief which is purely intellectual, such as the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides of the triangle. That is true. I believe that is true. It can be proved with a mathematical equation. But you know what? It doesn't make a lick of difference in the way I live. Are you with me? Then there's another kind of believe. The one that's being talked about here and the one that's being talked about in John 3.16. It is a belief that is not only in my head, but it's in my heart. It is a belief that changes the way I think. It changes the way I live. It changes the way I treat my neighbor. And what James is speaking against here in this passage is that first kind of belief. It's a belief, it's an acceptance of the facts of the gospel without any corresponding visible evidence. It's a profession of faith that bears no evidence or fruit of a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ. Years ago, there was a bumper sticker slogan that asked this question. If you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's your neighbors that are going to sit on this jury. Not us in here. And you with me? If you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I want to add to that. There must be more that separates you from your neighbor than the fact that you go to church on Sunday and he doesn't. Did you hear me? As a Christian, there's got to be something more going on in your life. Something more that separates you from your neighbor that the fact that you go to church on Sunday and he doesn't. You know what Jesus said? And this is amazing. Jesus said there will be individuals on the judgment day who are going to brag to him about all the things they did in his name. We did this in your name, and we did this in your name, and we did this in your name, and they are just going to lay it all out. You know what Jesus' response to him is going to be? Depart from me. I never knew you. But these are people that made a claim to believe. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said there would be a day when men would hold to a form of godliness, but they would deny the power thereof. A form of religion. There are places across our land, across our world, where people are meeting this morning and they're going through motions, but Ichabod was written over the door many, many years ago. The glory of the Lord has departed. And yet they're continuing to go through the motions for whatever that reason may be. 
James goes on to tell us that the devil and his demons are convinced that God is one and that he is the one true God. And when they think about it, you know what they do? They shudder. Some of your Bibles will say tremble. I like shudder better. Shudder has a little terror attached to it. The devil believes that God is one and shudders. But their belief does not alter their lives. Their belief does not result in becoming new creatures. Their belief does not manifest itself in holy living. My brothers and sisters, the true faith, the belief of what the Bible speaks, is to be taken into every core of our being and transform every arena of our life. And here's the facts. The fact is, no man, no woman can be saved by his good works. For we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. But although we are saved by faith alone, it is not a faith that is alone. The evidence of saving faith, according to the Scriptures, is a transformed life that is evidenced by good works and good deeds. Not good works and good deeds to earn our salvation, but good works and good deeds that flow from our lives because our lives are overflowing with the thankfulness of our salvation. And when somebody takes us off the ash heap and breathes life into this cold, dead being, and washes me of my sin, past, present, and future, wraps me in the robe of his righteousness, I'll tell you what, there's the motivation for living. Anybody here ever fallen in love with somebody? I did a certain, you, you did, Nancy? You want, I want to hear about that. <laughs> She's blushing now. Yesterday I stood right here, David and Jill Ewald celebrated yesterday their 50th wedding anniversary. And people gathered here yesterday, family and friends, and they came, she came walking down the aisle to the wedding march. And they, everybody got down here in front, and we went through the ceremony, and they renewed their vows. After 50 years, they said, if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it with you. And it was neat, and you could see it in their eyes. I mean, that David, he's the biggest ball baby you've ever seen. He could hardly talk when he is expressing his love to Jill. And I mean, he's... <laughs> and his sons have their hand on daddy's shoulder and give him a little pat. You can see it. There was evidence of their love. It was written all over them. Isn't it interesting that when we fall in love with somebody, we never count what we do as sacrifice? It's offered up as gift, a gift of grace. James is saying that these good works are, so to speak, the proof of the pudding. 
the foregone conclusion of the Scriptures is, if the Spirit of Jesus lives in you, then the fruit of the Spirit will flow from you. Let's return to the passage. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So I'm your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As I mentioned earlier, Pastor Jesse has reminded us that James's source material here was the Sermon on the Mount and the Proverbs, and this is where he borrows from the Proverbs. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. I call the words of verse 16, the Christian slip. The best way to extricate yourself from some of these awkward situations is, go in peace, be warmed and filled, I will pray for you. Is there not... Am I the only person in this room that's ever done that? Bless you, my brother. Bless you, my sister. I'll be praying for you. Got out of that one. Come on! Am Am I telling you something that the text doesn't say? I hope not. Dr. James Osborne, a contributing editor to the ESV Study Bible, commenting on this verse said this. In itself, the phrase, go in peace, be warmed and filled, is a pious wish and a prayer for the welfare of the poor. But in reality, it's a cop-out, masking a refusal to help a person in need. You know, Jesse's message got under some skin last week. I don't know why people call me. I don't, you know, he's now the senior pastor. Don't come tattling on him to me. <laughs> you know, his whole thing was on partiality. We are not to show partiality as brothers and sisters in Christ. For the rich over the poor, for the black over the white, for the male over the female, for the, the educated over the uneducated, they are one in Christ, and that's the way we're supposed to treat them. Well, I had one person ask me, well, if I do this good deed over here, do I get off the hook over here? <laughs> Come on! Well, I'll just make my tithe check a little bit bigger this week, and then I won't have to speak to my neighbor. I have a cartoon in my office someplace, and it shows a lady sitting on the other side of her pastor's desk, and she said, Pastor, I'm not real good at repentance, but you can use my beach house in August. It's an attempt to buy him off. And there's times I have to admit that I have lived that verse. I have slipped out of the awkward moment. Go in peace, be warm, I'll be praying for you. 
But I didn't reach into my pocket. I didn't reach into my closet. I didn't reach into my pantry. The person that was asking me about helping the poor, I said, you know, there's times, I, I've passed the person on the, on the corner with the sign many, many times, but you know what? There has been some times that I've passed them and it was like a shepherd's crook went around my neck. And I knew I was supposed to return and help that person. I don't know why. God never told me why. But he says, and the question is, are we at least open to the suggestion? If God would say, embrace that person, bring them unto yourself and help them, would we say, yes, Lord, or get thee behind me, Satan? You see, God isn't just going to take everything you have when you offer everything you have to God. But he wants you to be willing to offer up everything you have should he request it. And the works that James is talking about is the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of our lives as those who have been redeemed. Their life has been so transformed and trans... And there's something new that flows out of us that didn't flow out of us before. One more Eugene Peterson from the message. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Remember that question Mark I was talking about? <laughs> Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Naturally speaking, the very moment you separate the body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you'll get the same thing corpse in his second letter the apostle peter twice told the people that he was writing the letter to why he was writing the letter and he says i'm writing this letter to stir you up again by way of reminder and the word stir up means to arouse completely <laughs> i'm going to remind you I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you. And my friends, that's exactly what James is attempting in this letter. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to redeemed ones who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and they are the children of God. But he's stirring them up by way of reminder. He's saying, is it all really his? Are you playing favorites? Is it about you and no one else? And you know, as we keep on going, James, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because he's stirring us up. He's arousing us. He's going to, when I was, uh, when I worked in the operating room, we had this nurse. Her name was Ella Gilcrease. She was the, the epitome of, you know, if she turned sideways and stuck out her tongue, she looked like a zipper. This was a skinny lady. <laughs> and she had these fingers that were long and skinny. And at the end of the day, when we're cleaning the operating room, and especially the operating table, you know, we've had people on the table, they've bled on it and everything else. And so we, we, we'd clean it between cases, but then at the end of the day, we really cleaned it. And we'd get it cleaned, and here would come Ella Gilcrease, and she would take that finger... And she would run it into some crack on that operating table. 
And she would come back out with something under her fingernail. And what is that? Well, there wasn't another human being on the planet that had a finger like that. You know, you almost wanted to say, you're the only one that can reach it. Have at it. But that didn't work. You know, that didn't work. And I want you to know that as you are walking with Christ, and especially if you have any desire to go deeper with Christ, higher up and further in, I want you to know he's going to take the sweet finger of his word through the Holy Spirit, and he's going to dig into nooks and crannies of your life that have, to this point haven't been explored yet. And he's going to come back out and say, what about this? Do I love my stuff more than I love people? Is there any place of prejudice in my life? Is it about me and mine and no others? Or have I been transformed by the living God? My life is his for his bidding. My life is his for his bidding. Saved by works? Absolutely not. But when we've been truly saved and filled with his spirit, these things will flow from our life. Not as the source of our salvation, but as the evidence of our salvation. Let me return to where we started with Eugene. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work. And look at his work, how he diagnosing and then confronting and then dealing with the areas of misbelief and misbehavior that had turned up in the church. James isn't writing to the world. He's writing to the church. And he's stirring them up. And he's saying, really? Really? Deep and living wisdom is on display here. Wisdom both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is skill in living. What good is truth? What good is truth if we don't live it? Father in heaven, help us to take this verse with a panoramic view. Because what James is saying here can be found in more places than James chapter 2. It can be found in the words of John the Baptist. It can be found in the words of Jesus. It can be found in the words of the Apostle Paul. It can be found in the words of the Apostle Peter. Lord, my prayer is keep on digging. I know, Lord, there are still places in my life that are not yet fully surrendered to you. It's the desire of my heart that they would be so. By your Holy Spirit, use your Ella Gilchrist finger as you are doing right now through the book of James and reach into those recesses that still need some attention, that still need some confirmation to the life of my Savior. 
And Father, also spare us from just being busy for the sake of being busy because that's dead works. But as we fall in love with you, may the fruit of your spirit that now dwells within us manifest itself unto you and to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the world that is outside of our door. As we pray in Jesus' name.